Walking around the hospital ER with a cold nowadays is like walking around ancient Babylon with leprosy. I coughed behind two layers of face masks and a face shield the other day, and a patient in the corridor gave me a look like I had grabbed the last roll of toilet paper off the shelf at the supermarket back in April. Someone needs to get tested for COVID, she said. But it's just a cold. I've been tested. It's not COVID. But I can't tell everyone that when I let out a sneeze or my speech comes off congested. People with epilepsy, many of them feel the same kind of stigma, as Toy Robinson and I discussed back in episode 65, Active Recovery. They feel like they don't belong, like they're diseased, and they shouldn't even associate themselves with civilized society. And for 1% of the American population who have a seizure disorder, that can be a real burden to bear. Anyway, I'm just rambling about me and this cold. Today, we're not talking about the social stigma of epilepsy. We're talking about one of the tools that we use every day to make the diagnosis and to plan medical decision-making. The EEG is one of the oldest and still most clinically useful assessments of neurophysiology. An EEG or an electroencephalogram is sort of the foundation and actually a very, very good test. Because it may register occasional split-second surges in the brainwave activity. Surges, meaning synchronized cortical activity. That is black and white. Doctors call sharp waves. Which are irrefutable evidence of abnormal neuronal activity. And that EEG really can pinpoint the particulars of the seizures. And other than seizure activity, the EEG can also give you rich information regarding brain physiology in real time. Frequency and amplitude. Morphology, evolution over time and with a reasonably good degree of spatial resolution. And so I like that concrete feature that EEG gives me as a tool to take care of people who have epilepsy. This week on Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it, I'm talking with Dr. Tracy Milligan, an expert in the routine EEG. I'm an epileptologist and neurologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and I'm vice chair for education for the Department of Neurology. Dr. Milligan and I actually met almost a decade ago when I was still trying to figure out what kind of neurology I wanted to practice. I always found disorders of the cerebral cortex really interesting, but epilepsy is the one where you can talk to people when they're functioning normally about how it was when they weren't functioning normally. In our program today, Dr. Milligan and I will be discussing all the advantages and the limitations of this neurophysiologic test, when to do it, when not to do it, and how to apply the information you learn from it. And that's really interesting. Don't go anywhere. When I think about uh, the utility of EEG, it does remind me a lot about the head CT. You know, you mentioned it kind of being a black and white test. I don't know that it's so easy for me to know that something is certainly wrong or something is certainly fine Usually, I kind of do this test uh, as a complement of a lot of other testing, either with my history or with my physical exam. What are your thoughts about the routine EEG in an average person? Yeah, I think that what you said really resonates a lot, that it, it's used as a complement. So you really need to always start with the history because just looking at an EEG without the history you know, we actually, we do that when we're interpreting EEGs. We don't want to know the history. We want to be as objective as possible. But to get an EEG, you really want to start with your history and have, have on your differential something where EEG would be helpful to you. 
Other than for the diagnosis of epilepsy, for which a routine video EEG may only be 15-20% to 20 sensitive at predicting seizure recurrence, It can be very specific, though. A routine video EEG can also be useful for classifying specific events. Is this arm shaking or confusional spell a seizure, or is it non-epileptic? The EEG may also be useful for seizure localization and pre-surgical planning. Is it a temporal lobe epilepsy that could potentially be treated with surgical resection, or is it a primary generalized epilepsy disorder that may be best managed with vagal nerve stimulation? So um, when I'm ordering EEGs for my patients in clinic, it's a common thing that I tell them is the EEG will only help us if it's abnormal. And I think that's really important for our patients to know as well as to keep in mind ourselves because most of the time the patient is going into a test really hoping that it's normal. But when, you're, um, when you don't have a diagnosis for a patient, a normal test is not helpful, and especially one with low sensitivity like EEG. So if it's abnormal, it's very, very helpful. If it's normal, it hasn't really helped us further along in determining the diagnosis. EEGs come in several flavors, as I'm sure you know. The most commonly ordered EEG is a routine scalp recording. EEG from anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes. Which has the lowest sensitivity, but it's inexpensive, it's non-invasive, and we can get a lot of information about the interictal brain. And that technologists will have the patient rest with their eyes closed and do different procedures, such as looking at reactivity, having them close their eyes, open their eyes, looking for a certain pattern that's normal on EEG. And then we also try during a routine EEG for three activation procedures. And that those three activation procedures help us find abnormalities if abnormalities exist. And those three activation procedures are hyperventilation, typically for three minutes. Which can trigger seizure events in patients with absence epilepsy syndromes, but it may also induce epileptiform discharges in patients with partial seizures. Then we have photic stimulation with flashing lights at different frequencies, which triggers seizures in roughly 5% of patients with the photosensitive epilepsy syndromes, like JME and Dravet syndrome, and sleep, which we try to achieve in all patients undergoing a routine EEG. Because I do find that sleep is more sensitive for bringing out abnormalities. Sleep, and the transition into sleep, is thought to be epileptogenic because the brain is switching between states of consciousness and the neuronal activity may become more rhythmic. So that's a really important part of a routine EEG. Not everybody falls asleep during the EEG, but we do our best to um, capture sleep. But like outpatient cardiac event monitoring for paroxysmal AFib, something that is a little more cumbersome. The longer you monitor with the EEG, the more likely you are to find an electrographic abnormality. Ambulatory EEG is an EEG, sort of our version uh, in neurology of the halter monitor for the heart. Where there are other advantages besides just having a higher probability of capturing events. The patient goes home for um, 24 to 72 hours. We record the EEG during that time. Or maybe we want to see how frequent the seizures might be occurring in a typical day. Because maybe the patient only experiences events at home under certain circumstances, which can't be replicated in the artificial environment of the neurology clinic. Those would all be common reasons that we would order an EEG. And if we're looking for the diagnosis, then we start with a routine EEG. Because I do find that sleep is more sensitive for bringing out abnormalities. Or maybe you want to determine if the patient's showing an electrographic response to a new treatment or an intervention. 
And if the patient's undergoing pre-surgical evaluation and the seizure focus lies within eloquent cortex, cortex that's responsible for language, for example, the patient may undergo intracranial EEG, where electrodes are placed along the cortical surface or deep inside parenchymal tissue, depth electrodes. Next, Dr. Milligan and I spoke about the ideal circumstances in which a routine or continuous EEG might be beneficial. Sleep depriving a patient may be one way to optimize the sensitivity for detecting something abnormal in an EEG. What other periods would be optimal for you to acquire a routine EEG or a longer term study? So um, if a routine EEG is normal and um, we're still trying to understand what the patient is experiencing, these transient events that they're experiencing, then the sooner that we can do the EEG after the event, the better. I'll reiterate that. The sooner after a patient has had a clinical event, the higher the yield of the EEG. It's thought that, following the seizure, the brain is in a relative state of hyperexcitability. However, the evidence supporting this hypothesis is confounded by significant selection bias in observational studies. In general, there seems to be a trend towards a higher sensitivity of the routine EEG performed within 24 hours when compared to EEGs that are performed more than 72 hours later. That said, you can imagine that patients who are presumed to be at higher risk of recurrent seizures, maybe they have a structural brain lesion or they have a family history of epilepsy, the providers for those patients might be more aggressive in obtaining earlier EEGs, artificially inflating the positive findings in those patients who get EEG'd within 24 hours. So the ability for people to more easily put on an EEG is something that is really important. It's important in the United States where we're trying to think about ways to limit exposure to potential infections like COVID-19. And it's important worldwide where there often isn't the availability of an EEG technologist. So I think that... Dr. Milligan mentions this because there are newer technologies that are emerging which can help us to detect seizure events or collect electrographic data, which can be used to predict seizure recurrence earlier after a patient has experienced a possible seizure. As far as easy ways to put electrodes on the scalp, there are EEG caps that people have used where you just sort of tightly put it down and it has electrode contacts. There are devices like StatNet where there are big stickers that you put on. Um, At Mass General Brigham, Dr. Milligan recounts that sometimes they'll get a simple, quick result. Is the patient seizing or not? And then what we've done historically in our hospital is below the hairline EEG. And that involves taking the stickers for EKG and just putting them, a series of them, under the hairline and then um, plugging it into the EEG machine. Uh, So it's good for patients who are comatose and you want to make sure they're not in status epilepticus. Yeah. Because that would show up with just the below the hairline. Kind of like a point of care glucose. You can imagine that it's a point of care brainwave test. And this technology can quickly and effectively simplify cerebral activity or even become integrated into a patient's critical care, just like a vital sign. Um, Similar to what anesthesiologists do in the OR where they are given a number for level of sedation using EEG, we can be given colors and numbers and intensive care physicians can monitor EEG to look at perfusion, cerebral um, pressure, overall level of consciousness. And so it's one of those technologies. Among the many benefits of EEG, I would also add that a routine EEG can be useful in a patient who has an undifferentiated encephalopathy. 
In the hospital, I often find myself ordering routine studies in patients with toxic or metabolic encephalopathies who fail to improve despite attempts at treating the proximal cause, treating an infection or something. You can feel validated when there's generalized slowing, triphasic waveforms, frontal intermittent rhythmic delta activity or excess beta, and no seizures when your patient remains altered and you presume that it's a metabolic encephalopathy. And there are other times when an EEG can be used to capture specific events and determine if they are seizures or not. Because if I am on an EEG and having my typical event, which is strong sense of deja vu, depersonalization, out-of-body experience, and I'm telling you about it, the vast majority of the time it won't show up on EEG when it's a seizure. When it's that type of seizure, focal aware seizure, that's an internal event, even hallucinations, for example, the sensitivity of the EEG is only about 18%. Now, if I'm totally confused, staring off into space and not answering you, the EEG will be abnormal if it's a seizure. This is because there is global cerebral dysfunction with complex partial seizures, or seizures which can affect awareness. Tiny hand twitching, or epilepsia partialis continua, you might see nothing. The more of the motor cortex that's involved, the greater the sensitivity, even when the patient is aware. Drop attack, generalized convulsions, those you should see on EEG if they are the result of an electrographic brain disturbance. Somebody is totally out of it, not responsive, and the EEG does not show seizure activity, it's not a seizure happening then. But as soon as you see those characteristic changes in amplitude, frequency, morphology, that is black and white, and you see that they may have a field to them, a field to them, a field to them, or they may spread to other adjacent areas, then you know it's real. And other than trialing the patient on various antiepileptics, the EEG may be useful for other treatment modalities. In some instances, such as the pre-surgical planning for drug-resistant epilepsy, the routine EEG can be helpful for localizing the seizure focus. Like you said, is it generalized or is it focal? Uh, would the patient benefit from temporal lobe resection or something else? Uh, but even then, the routine EEG may still have some limitations. What are we missing with a routine EEG and when might we want something more invasive? Yeah, so I think just to step back, the, the utility of EEG in somebody you know has epilepsy, for every patient you have who has epilepsy, they should have an EEG at least once. That really guides your management, um, AED selection, even prognosis. For the patients who are drug resistant and we're thinking about ways that surgery might be helpful, I would say for any patient who is drug resistant, they should be admitted to an epilepsy monitoring unit because we want to make sure, first of all, we have the diagnosis correct. And then second of all, that we understand more about the seizures by actually recording the seizures. And just as a quick aside, one of the patients that I saw had a diagnosis of generalized epilepsy and continued seizures. Medications were not working. His EEG looked like somebody who had generalized epilepsy. But when we brought him in for monitoring, he had frontal lobe epilepsy and was a surgical candidate. So again, it's one of those situations you need to be the clinical in conjunction with the EEG. And sometimes to get your best clinical data, you actually have to see it for yourself and record the, the seizure. So in drug-resistant epilepsy, when we're considering surgery, we want to, first of all, by history, understand all of the seizure types a person is having. And then on EEG monitoring, capture 
those seizures by um, often it means taking away medications so we can better record the seizures. Sometimes everything lines up. The patient has symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy, the MRI is abnormal in one temporal lobe, and the surface EEG shows all the typical seizures come from the temporal lobe. Everything is concordant, and we can offer that patient surgery. Which may help 60% of patients achieve seizure freedom, according to the 2001 randomized clinical trial by Weebin colleagues, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Other times, maybe we can't even see where the seizure starts in the surface EEG. The patient um, is on the epilepsy monitoring unit. They press the event button. They feel their typical seizure. And we're looking at the EEG and we don't see anything. Because, it turns out, we need three square centimeters. Several square centimeters of cerebral cortex. Of abnormally firing neurons. That is on the surface, going through all of the meninges, the skull, and then through the scalp, and finally getting to the electrode. And sometimes that's it. And sometimes by the time we see something, all the electrodes are involved, and we don't know where it started. So that would be a trickier circumstance where the surface EEG was not as helpful as we hoped it would be. If the seizure doesn't occur or spread along cortical neurons directly beneath the skull, or if it occurs deep beneath the surface of the skull, a scalp EEG may not pick it up. And at that point, we go to more invasive EEG recording. Meaning intracranial monitoring, recordings from electrodes placed along the surface of the brain itself or deep within the cortical tissue. For what it's worth, in the trial by Weeb and colleagues that I mentioned before, involving the 80 patients with temporal lobe epilepsy who were randomized to temporal lobe surgery or to medical management, the majority of patients underwent pre-surgical planning with scalp EEG alone. Only one out of the 40 patients had a more individualized temporal lobectomy because of the findings on their intracranial EEG. So more often than not, invasive monitoring is not needed for surgical planning. Getting back to the yield of the scalp EEG, Dr. Milligan and I had mentioned how much brain tissue needs to be involved in order to detect an electrographic abnormality, and which part of the brain that's involved. You can imagine a focal motor seizure involving the leg may never be detected with a scalp recording, but there are other situations in which a scalp EEG may fail to give you the diagnosis. So for example, frontal lobe epilepsy is notorious for being challenging to diagnose because, for example, hypermotor seizures the patient may be moving around so much, you're not even really getting a good surface EEG recording. And their seizures can look very unusual. Often they're making unusual motor movements with preservation of consciousness and or no postictal period. And this can be very difficult to distinguish from a non-epileptic event, which can look like almost anything. But there are some classic findings on the video EEG during the recording. The eyes are closed, head shaking side to side, epistotonus. A lot of the times, the semiology of a non-epileptic event will change. Asynchronous motor activity. The arms and legs are shaking out of sync with each other. Patient not responding. Typically without any tongue biting, no incontinence of stool or urine, and no evidence of dysautonomia. Pupils are unchanged. Pulse is the same. And on the EEG, you can actually see the electrodes and you don't see anything rhythmic, sharp, epileptiform, and you can see normal background activity. So that allows you to be sure that you've captured psychogenic non-epileptic events. 
So in conclusion, there is tremendous information you can glean from a routine intraictal EEG. I love EEG. And it's useful whether the patient has epilepsy or not. And it tells you so much about a person that no other test that exists tells you. Does the patient have a predisposition for recurrent seizures? Where are the seizures coming from? Or is there something that's non-epileptic which could potentially explain the patient's neurologic dysfunction? It has the highest temporal fidelity of any test. Right? We know at that exact millisecond what's happening. It is a test almost entirely without risk. Never harms a person. Our interpretation might. <laughs> but putting the electrodes on the head for a routine EEG, it's safe. It's um, not expensive compared to our other diagnostic tests, and it gives us information that no other diagnostic test can give us. I'm so sad that this is a podcast and no one can see how enthusiastic and passionate you are about this, Dr. Milligan. It's just, I mean, I just, I want to go and look at EEGs right now. (laughs) Uh, Good. (laughs) I had a great time. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. All right. Have a great day, Jim. You too. Take care, Dr. Milligan. Bye-bye. That wraps it up for another week of the Brainways podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And huge thanks to Dr. Milligan again for joining me on the program today and for sharing her experience with ordering and interpreting routine EEGs. As always, Brainways is a program that's intended for medical education and should not be used for routine clinical decision making. You shouldn't justify to your patients that you're going to get an EEG because the podcast said so. This week's episode of the Brainways podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, with the help of Tracy Milligan. Our show is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with music courtesy of Steve Coombs, Lee Rosevere, Siddhartha, Soft and Furious, Patches, and Magic in the Other, under a Creative Commons license. Our theme song was composed by Timothy Dalton. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeone. For more information on what was discussed in the show, as always, please take a look at our show notes for the references to the highest yield of material on the topics, and follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. I'm Jim Sigler. Talk to you soon.